and Labor tended to have an, uh, to see the world or to see society in terms of class and competing class interests, whereas the Liberals were rejecting a notion of class and wanting to see societies made up of individual moral agents. Welcome to The Political Animals. I'm your host, Jonathan Cole. I'm a scholar, writer, and translator specializing in political theology, the intersection of religion and politics. It's a great pleasure to welcome to the show Judith Brett, who is an emeritus professor at La Trobe University, one of my alma maters, as it happens, where she taught Australian politics, political biography, and political history. She's the author of quite a few books, more than one of them award-winning, books such as Robert Menzies' Forgotten People, Australian Liberals and the Moral Middle Class, which I've read, and it's an absolutely superb book. I commend it highly. And also The Enigmatic Mr. Deacon. And she's joining me for a conversation about liberalism in Australia. Judith, a warm welcome to you. Thank you. Okay, Judith, whenever one embarks on a conversation about a concept that ends in the three letters ISM and ISM, mm -hmm. I think it's incumbent on us to offer some definition at the outset. So before we dive into the storied and interesting history of liberalism in Australia that has had such a big impact on our political life and still does today in some respects by virtue of the fact we have something called the Liberal Party, uh, how should we understand this term liberalism in the Australian context? Look, I'm a historian and I think we need to understand it historically because what it means to some extent shifts in different historical periods and in different historical contexts. Um, liberalism in a way grows out of um, feudalism, traditional societies where uh, markets, you know, where, where the economy was organised um, according to very traditional means where the monarch had a lot of power, where people were tied to particular positions, sometimes particular places, particular roles. And it's about the freeing of individuals from that. It's also um, about the development of Protestant religion, where the relationship between a person um, and their God is the central religious experience rather than people's um, membership of, um, you know, well, it was the Catholic Church, you know, where it's actually the priest that mediates the relationship with God. So that's, in a sense, its origins. And so um, when Australia was founded, the, Euro the European settlement here, um, basically liberalism was the dominant political thinking for most of the 19th century. The that conservatism, as it was understood in, in Britain, was linked to notions of hereditary privilege, in particular um, respect for the monarchy, which we continued. Um, but it, the, most of the settlers who came here would have described themselves as liberals. That is, they were against entrenched hereditary privilege. Um, many of them were probably the majority of them were Democrats with the support for an expansion of, of the male um, right to vote. Um, obviously there was no, um, a, no 
existing property rights amongst the settlers that they, they, the Indigenous people had been dispossessed and the Crown had taken control of the property, but then the property was being dispersed in a market economy. So there was a market economy in a sense set up here, which goes with liberalism where it's the market economy is one where the economy is based on transactions between individuals, buyers and sellers of land, of goods and of labour. So, so um, that's what it really means until the development of the Labor Party at the turn of the century. Okay, and we will we'll return to that yeah. issue of the uh, Labor Party and its complex relationship, a dialectical relationship in a way with liberalism in Australia. But I'm just I'm curious because it, it's fascinating that so much of what determines, in a way, the political culture of Australia comes down to the age in which British settlers uh, establish colonies here, which is later, obviously, than America, later than, yes. than what emerges in, in Canada. Is, is it, would it be fair to say that um, one of the distinctive characteristics of Australia and its political history is that because it's it's founded in this age in which liberalism is dominant, does that make liberalism a much more significant uh, force or shaping Australian culture and development compared to places like the US? Um, Not to say there's no liberalism there, but it seems to be a more complex array of, you know, religious dissidents and uh different sort of, uh, a, a more, if you like, diverse system of isms. Yeah, well, look, firstly, I mean, I think the obvious thing is the United States is so much bigger, you know, we're a much smaller society. So in that sense, there's a lot less of us to f fragment. Um, mm -hmm. Two things I'd say. The first is that the Labor Party and the current Labor Party and the current Liberal Party and the current National Party are all heirs to 19th century liberalism. Although in the present we think of the Liberal Party versus the Labor Party, basically the Labor Party is also historically based in liberalism, right? The second thing I would say is that the other important thing about the political culture of Australia, I think, which is distinctive, probably a bit similar in New Zealand, but I don't really know quite enough about New Zealand, is that we... Um, and this, this in a way counterbalances the liberalism a bit, is we don't, we trust government. We have a confidence in, a, in, in big government. Um, I wrote a book um, called on why Australia had compulsory voting. And in the beginning of that, I talk about the difference between Australia being founded in the 19th century when the United States was founded, because we're not really a rights-based culture in the same way. We we, um, the government was here from the beginning, um, whereas in the United States they have a sort of a social contract theory of government, that we begin with individuals who bear natural rights and they give some of those rights over to the government. So they say, how could you have compulsory voting because the government doesn't yet exist to tell you how to vote. The government only gets its authority from the vote of the individual. Australians don't think like that. Government was here from the beginning. Laws. Um, and rights were given by gov rights were given by government, and so we don't have some sort of 
we don't see some contradiction, some unresolvable problem about about compulsory voting. Now, to, so there's that historically, but but also historically in the 19th century, the government in Australia was the major source of capital investment for the development of the economy. Um, it, Australia was not as like the soil, um, the water. I mean, it was a much. It's a hard. It was a harder country to colonize, harder country to farm. So, for settlements to be successful in a lot of areas, it required cap, it required the government to put money in, build roads, um, build ports, channel rivers, that sort of thing. So, I, again, that means that there's again more trust in government. And so that balances the the uh, individualism, if you like, which I guess you know the thing about what we'd say is continuation of, of liberalism is that liberalism does focus on the individual, but in Australia it's not so much in terms of rights in the way it is in America. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating contrast. I just want to pick up on something you said there, Judith, yeah. that was very intriguing, which I hadn't actually even ever considered or I don't think I've even heard it this idea that the Labor Party is just as much an heir of 19th century liberalism as the party that adopts the name liberalism the the liberal party could you could you sort of expand just a little bit on in what sense the Labor Party and I guess the Labor movement which uh, both of which begin late, you know, I think in the 19th century in Australia. Well, yeah, the, the, the first Labor parties in Australia form in the 1890s and they form um, as a result of the failure of some big industrial, big strikes, the Shearer's strike, um, you know, strikes amongst the rural workers. There's also a maritime strike. And at that stage, Australian men have had the vote in the eastern states since the late 1850s. Um, and so the leaders of the labour movement, the union, the strikes have failed. Um, they've seen the way the colonial governments have used the powers of the state against the strikers, you know, brought out police against them to protect scab labour and that sort of thing. And so they've said, well, why don't we use our votes to get um to get working men into parliament so that so it you you get the development of what of a, of a political wing of the labor party but they're liberal in that i suppose you could talk about it as a social liberalism in the late 19th century um there's in england uh, partly driven by religious thinking there's um a move against there's there's a development against laissez-faire liberalism. Laissez-faire liberalism is the idea, you know, that that individuals in the market are competing and that the government shouldn't intervene. Social liberalism is also focused on the rights on on the individual, but it says all individuals need to have the same opportunities to develop their God-given capacities um, to lead a good life, and if you leave it to the market. The markets thrive on and create inequality, and unless there's some sort of interventions, um, either by charities or by the state, well, then a lot of individuals will never be able to fulfil their development. And and uh, there's a lot of Protestant religious leaders 
Catholic religious leaders who come to want to see more state um, support for you know the, the development of of freely available education for everybody. You know, so so there's a commitment to equality of opportunity, which is also there in the Labor Party. Um, the, the the big stumbling block for Liberals when the Labor Party forms is um, in their ideas of organisational solidarity, that if you're in, in the union, you do what the majority says, that is you give over your freedom um, of will or of conscience or of action to the collectivity on the basis of a free vote. I mean, it's not, it's not a compelled but once that happens then there's a degree of coercion and then when you get Labor parties in Parliament in the first um, like in the first federal Parliament in Australia there's 24 members who've been elected from various labor-backed leagues they're called at that stage the party hadn't formed and they and they form a caucus that is a meeting of the of the part of the members of the party in the Parliament including in the Senate and they agree, you know, and the rule is that they will all vote as the majority decides. And that is a big stumbling block for um, progressively minded liberals like somebody like Alfred Deakin and, and his supporters who see themselves as on the side of the working man but who cannot stomach the idea of having to, um, be, having their vote bound by the majority in the caucus. And so that's seen as illiberal, if you like, and 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 again in in the in in strikes in in unions in. Yeah. So it's that tension between organisational solidarity of working class organisations, and a more individualist um, freedom of action, which middle class liberals value. What I find so fascinating about that observation, Judith, is that still today. You routinely hear from the modern Liberal Party yeah. <laughs> arguments about their, I suppose, moral or political or organisational superiority. Because unlike the Labor Party, where there's this parliamentary discipline and the yeah. individual's conscience gets subsumed or subordinated to the party, you know, we're able to cross the floor. It doesn't seem to happen very often in practice, but it's it's still a big part of the self-identity, it seems. I didn't realise that went all the way back over 100 years. Yeah, no, it's look, I think it's absolutely um, fundamental in the formation of the two-party system that we've got because, in fact, at the time, if we go back, it's 1909 that the two-party system we have forms before they had three parties. Um, if you look at it, Deakin and his Liberal Party shared many policy objectives with the Australian Labor Party as it had formed in 1901-1902. And so the big difference was, you know, the thing that they decided they really couldn't join with Labor was over these organisational issues. And so, and, and so if you look back over, you know, the last 120 years, you see the political parties, there are policy differences, but in different historical periods, they sort of move together up and down the political spectrum. Sometimes they're both more right-wing, sometimes they're both more left-wing. But this organisational marker is something 
which they cling on to. I mean, when I I did um, when I first studied politics at Melbourne University in the late nineteen sixties, David Kemp was one of my was a tutor in my first year class, and I remember being the, him talking about this organisational difference. Or it might have been Tony Staley who did the lectures, but you know that for that they saw this organisational difference when they were teaching us as something that was a clear marker of difference between the two parties. So the, the, the traditions of party organisation do carry these different meanings, even though, as you point out, uh, the Liberal Party was forced by Labor being quite a disciplined party in Parliament to adopt a fair amount of party discipline. And as you say, they don't cross the floor very often. But if you cross the floor in Labor, you'll get expelled, whereas they haven't expelled Bridget Archer. Yeah. <laughs> Fascinating. Well, we'll circle back to the contemporary Liberal yeah. Party at the back end of this conversation, you mentioned Alfred Deakin and 1909 and the beginning of the two-party system. That might surprise some listeners who may be familiar that the Liberal Party, as we know it, was formed by one Robert Menzies in 1944. And you note in um, Australian Liberals and the moral middle class that the Liberal parties, I suppose, plural, although I, I, I suppose really you're conceiving of sort of one Liberal Party, it's just that the 1944 Menzies version has some predecessors and it seemed to have been a little bit more messy and unstable, but it's gone through four iterations or reinventions or reorganisations. And I would like to sort of delve into this a little yeah. bit. But the first Liberal Party at the national Level. I don't know if there were liberal parties in the um, colonial. Oh, look, the there, state, were people, uh, yeah, there were period. people who called themselves liberals in the colonial period. You know, the term is used. Um, the the other thing that makes you know the sort of it's sort of complicated is the different colonies have slightly different political configurations about what the parties are called, but and so the division that people probably are very well aware of between the colonies that mainly New South Wales that supported free trade and uh, Victoria and South Australia that were more inclined to tap, want a tariff protection for their industries. Um, that was what was being the mark, mark of the difference. So people might call themselves a free trade party or the Liberal Protectionist mm -hmm. Party. Um, so the, it's pretty fluid. Um, the uh, and even then in the 20th century, you've got state the, the parties, the political parties are organized at a state level. And the, the, the thing that's um, innovative about the Labor Party is the Labor Party sets up a national structure where, like, like it sets up, um, you know, a national executive and a national conference, whereas the, the state based let's call them Liberal parties, are much less well-coordinated at the national level. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's one of the things that Menzies' Liberal Party does is it provides a strong national coordination and organisation. Um, when, like, you're quite right about, about the fact that the there's a reformation, you know, after 1910, um, going through, but and, I, and when I was thinking, write, writing the book, Australian Liberals in the Middle Class, I thought, do I talk about 
you know, there's the Liberal Party, then there's the Nationalist Party, then there's the United Australia Party, and then there's the Liberal Party again. Do I keep changing those names? And I discussed this with um, John Hurst, the historian who was a friend of mine, and he said just use the term liberal for all of it because it's actually a continuous political tradition. You've got the same leading personnel, if you like, in it. You've got the same funding structures. Um, the differences is that at, at both times in the formation of the Nationalist Party during the First World War and then of the United Australia Party in the Depression, these parties are reformed when there's splits in Labor and a section of, la of the Labor Party, in a sense, crosses the floor and joins with the Liberal opponents. So um, I decided to, to, to say, well, yes, there is this continuous Liberal tradition because when Menzies forms the Liberal Party, he doesn't form it out of nowhere. You know, he yeah. forms it out of these pre-existing political organisations, but they were fragmenting. Yeah. So would it be fair to say, Judith, that the, the Liberal Party of Menzies, which is still with us today, yeah. was a consolidation and culmination of these pre-existing uh, parties, figures, policies, ideas, movements, and it was sort yeah, of Yeah, look, it's a reconfiguration. Um, it's, it's a response. Uh, you know, you mentioned 43, 44, there's a war on. Mm. Um, Labor, uh, Labor is in power under John Curtin. It's very popular. And at the 1943 election, um, the Liberal... The non-Labor vote, let's call it that, had fragmented. So the United Australia Party, which was the sort of party of government, did really poorly and there's all these other, you know, it was fragmenting to the right to some extent and also to the left, but, and it was fragmented at the state level. And Menzies said we need to have, our political party needs one name, the same name in every state. We need a national organisation. I mean, the... In the 1930s, the elections, the election campaign was run out of out of Joe Lyon's personal office. You know, there wasn't a national election, you know, coordinator. You know, yeah. there, so um, and Labor, so Labor had a much more modern and streamlined and national organisation. And so much of what Menzies was trying to do is set up a coordinated organisation. So one of his big wins was to get the Australian Women's National League, which was based in Victoria, and it was called a league. I mean, we don't have these things now, but it didn't stand party candidates for, it wasn't interested in putting women up for election, but it was interested in mobilising women to support particular candidates. So it had a bit of influence on pre-selection. It was very powerful. It was good, good at fundraising and it provided, you know, foot power, women on the ground who would do the canvassing, who would maintain the roles, who would send out the um, postal votes, organise getting old people to the polls, that sort of thing. Um, so he got them to come into the new party organisation to, to give up being a separate organisation and, and to come into the party. So there's that organisational challenge he had. But the second challenge he had at that point was that the liberal, let's call it the major non-labor traditions were had been pretty compromised by um, the the 
sufferings of the depression. There was a war lab- and and um, Labor was doing well. Labor was also um, introducing, starting to talk about introducing more social welfare policies. That is, attitudes to the welfare state were shifting. So Menzies and and so attitudes to the welfare state are shifting, and attitudes to economic management are shifting. Keynesianism is starting to to become um, a framework in which which people are thinking about the economy. So Menzies has to also get the modernise um, the Liberal Party's thinking and get them to accept an expanded welfare state and accept um, an expanded role for the federal, for the government in the management of the economy. So then in having done that, he then has to draw a line and it, and it becomes really a matter of how much government control, you know, mm-hmm. not no government control but but how, but how much? So he's got to get, get them to, in a sense, modernise. I guess. Um, yeah, Judith. If we um, <clears throat> excuse me, if we just go back again to the that uh, liberal period from nineteen oh one to nineteen forty four, when yeah. the the Liberal Party, as we know it, is is founded. Could you paint a picture for us of the liberal ideology or philosophy of that era, beginning with Deakin, and what? Because I imagine it's quite very different from today. What What are the big ideas or concerns, or sort of what, what are the big uh, policy issues that liberals stand for or champion in that? Yeah, well, look, early I think, period. I think um, it's like. There's a, a sort of a it's a world view. It's a bit, I like to think about it. You know, what is the typical? How does the typical liberal voter think about themselves? And what I argue in Australian liberals and the moral middle class is that the Australian liberal tradition in that period is is grounded in, in this group that I call the moral middle class, and they've got three characteristics. They're predominantly Protestant. That is one of the other dividing lines that that come in the early. 20th century, and it isn't necessary that this would have happened, but it did, is that um, Catholics are drawn to the Labor Party. Um, Or I should say probably it's not so much Catholics are drawn to the Labor Party, but Catholics tend to be pushed out of the um, liberal tradition. The Catholics um, are less uncomfortable with the uh, notion of sort of collective action, um, and so there are plenty of middle class Catholics. I think this is the important thing. You know, the class doesn't help us understand it. Yes, there are lots of working class Catholics, but there are plenty of middle class Catholics as well, and they tend to be drawn to the Labor Party because there is a degree of sectarianism in the Liberal Party um, in, in in that formation around the notion of the individual. There's that sense that. Protestants carry that Catholics don't think for themselves. They do what the priest says, and in doing what the priest says, well, then they can translate that into doing what the union boss says. And Deacon's son-in-law, Herbert Brooks, um, exemplifies this. You know, he starts off as a liberal, but during the war, the First World War, he he funds um, a newspaper 
uh, called the Vigilant, which is, you know, the worst of sectarian sort of orange. He was a, his mother was a Northern Irish woman. Um, you know, suspicions of papists and, um, and, and the tension with Daniel Mannix over the war too. I mean, obviously um, that comes into it. So there's Protestantism. Um, but then it, there's a, another two virtues, if you like, um, which probably a lot of the Catholic middle class would have shared. One is the notion um, that of service, that what that this, as, as a citizen don't ask what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. I mean, I remember as a child people would say things like, be a good little citizen and pick up your toys. <laughs> really? Yeah, that is being a citizen was not seen as, as something which was a right exemplified, the, the, sorry, a right which the state gave you. It wasn't understood simply as a sort of a legal status or even a political status. It was seen as a um, a sort of moral status, a way of thinking not just about yourself as an individual but thinking about the collectivity, the family or the school ground or whatever. It was about not being completely self-interested. Um, oh. And so there was a notion of service. Um, one of the things that the Liberals, when the party was being reformed in the middle of the war, would say about themselves is where we're the people who join, we're the people who keep the community organisations going. You know, we run Rotary, we run the women's guilds, you know, we run the tennis clubs, you know, that that sort of thing. So, so there was the notions of service, of, of citizenship and service, and there was also um, a notion of, of sound finance. And this was, um, I mean, this is quite hard, I think, for, it's, it's quite abstract, but um, and quite hard for modern people to think about. But Keynesianism, the idea that the government should take responsibility for the economy, was not on the radar because they, the government didn't have the tools to do this. The government ran the books, you know. It had the balance. It had, it had responsibilities in terms of providing certain services, providing defence. Um, it had sources of income from taxation or from tariff revenue, um, from land sales, and its job it was financial, not economic. That is, it managed the nation's finances like a household did, income yeah. in, expenditure out. Now, what Keynes said was, no, governments are not like households. Governments can manage demand when the economy's in a bad, when the, you know, during a depression, government should spend more, not cut back. And this was really counterintuitive uh, to, to the thinking of, if you like, the moral middle class because that capacity to manage your money was seen, again, as, as a sort of a moral capacity. It meant you could delay gratification. Um, you know, you, you could save thrift um you took responsibility for yourself. Now, now we see we saw under Maggie Thatcher some of that rhetoric revived when neoliberalism comes along. So that's, that's so interesting. Sort of the social world of the people who voted on Labor. Now, the Labor voters and Labor tended to have an, uh, to see the world 
or to see society in terms of class and competing class interests, whereas the Liberals were rejecting a notion of class and wanting to see society as made up of, of, of individual moral agents. You know, it's not what I do, it's who I am that matters. One of the really, I thought, very illuminating and innovative arguments running through the book is that, uh, and you can completely correct me if, I, if I've got this, if I've misconstrued the argument, but you say, yes, class is an important determining factor in this tussle between the labor movement and liberalism, certainly throughout the early to mid and slightly later 20th century, but it's not class in the way a Marxist would conceive it. You have offered a different analysis of of class building off this um, notion of the moral middle class and the working class. So I just wonder if you could, it'd be interesting to hear you yep. tease out the ways in, in which we should understand the the factor of class. And I'm particularly interested in this, Judith, because no one, very well, I say no one, maybe I'm in the wrong circles, but you rarely hear class mentioned in our political discourse and analysis, certainly in public. There's the odd accusation of class warfare that was leveled against Bill Shorten from memory, but I, 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 I found that line of attack a bit quixotic, and I was wondering who that would actually even resonate with because class doesn't seem to be a, a such a big part of our consciousness anymore, yeah. but this was a big factor 100 years ago, 50 years ago. Yes. Um, okay, so what I was wanting to argue was that um, what Labor does is, I mean, Labor understands itself as a party based in the in working class and that at the industrial level, at the workplace level, there is a, a conflict of interest between the workers and the owners of the means of production, if you like, who are concerned to make profit out of the labour of the workers. And But also there were real differences in life chances about where you were born. So People born into the working classes, you know, they would be born into suburbs where health outcomes were lower, educational opportunities were fewer, they'd end up in manual jobs. Um, and what they wanted was, I mean, a lot of the early Labor Party's focus was on industrial conditions, you know, better pay, um, the right to strike, the right to bargain, those things, which are still there, but they're now fairly peripheral in, in terms of all the things people think about um, and, the, and better income. Um, and middle-class people saw themselves very differently. People's accents were different. They dressed differently. They lived in different parts, you know, because people were much less mobile. Pre, mm-hmm. um, they lived in different parts of the city. So there were there was sort of communities and these the two parties in a way were grounded in those two different communities. And so... Um, now, one of the things that I was wanting to argue in Australian liberals in the middle class was that, yes, and I was partly here arguing against um, a sort of a dominant in a lot of the Australian political history which wanted to read the Liberal Party simply in terms, describe it as a middle class party. 
and then make that as if they were um, the dupes of the owners of, of capital, you know, like it and, 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 of course, yes, there are the big manufacturers, the big pastoral interests, the wealthy are on the non-labour side, but there's not enough of them to explain the electoral popularity of the non-labour parties. So I was interested in trying to explain the source of the Australian Liberals' electoral dominance in the experience of of sort of the smaller middle class, you know, like the clerks and the shopkeepers, um, you know the the what the, the sort of white collar workers who voted for them and what and their self understandings and they didn't understand themselves. Class was not a term that they used to ex, to understand themselves and why they voted for the Liberal Party rather than the Labor Party. Class might have been a term that the Labor Party used to under, to explain you know to appeal to its supporters, but it was not a term that the Liberal Party used. They said, as I said, that it's not who you, it's not what you do, i.e. it's not your role in the economy and your position in the means of production, which is what the class-based system was around. It's who you are, i.e. it's your moral qualities, and that's what we're appealing to. And I then said, then that's one of the reasons why in that period the Liberal Party was able to appeal to women because women were actually outside Many women were outside of the formal economy. They were housewives in the home. They weren't. They didn't have a boss. Um, they weren't in a union. They were um, living in a face-to-face world of individuals, where individuals' moral qualities was what they were focused on, and and hence the um, appeal to people to vote on the basis of their moral qualities. Um, you know. What was 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 persuasive. Now, there's of course again in the Labor Party, there's appeal to moral qualities as well about compassion and concern and um, and notions of equality. But it, I, I was just trying because in if you looked at our our political history, there was very little on that delved into how the middle class self-described understood themselves. Now, the comment that you make about how we don't talk about class much now, I think, is because everybody thinks they're middle class now. (laughs) If you do surveys in Australia, that's what people say, we're middle class. Yeah, I I have actually read a little bit of the uh, literature on that and I can't remember exactly, but it's fascinating because it's, it's, you know, the self-perception. You get people who are sort of wealthier than the middle class if you break it up by income. And they'll say, no, I'm, I'm middle class, even though they're way wealthier than. Yeah. And then you have people, interestingly, who put themselves in the middle class, even if they're slightly below. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of, I wonder if that's, is it just because middle class sounds good? No one wants to be too rich or too poor. No, I think it's because middle class um, was, um, in a sense, keyed into a notion of sort of, of individualism, and I think that the society, we'll probably talk about this more, has become more individualist, um, more of the sort of communal social bonds that have linked. So people have a sense of 
you know, they choose their occupation, they choose who they marry, you know, they don't have the same sense of being in tribes, if you like, in, in the way they once did. Um, and Australia has delivered um, a lot of, you know, has delivered affluence, uh, in particularly in the post-Second World War period. And so people who were in those working-class suburbs, you know, their boats lifted along with the economy and they 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 had a house and... Um, now, I mean, I think there's a lot of things happening in the economy and society now which are challenging that. Whether or not people understand that in terms of the old class system, class terms is a bit is a different question, but there's certainly now a lot more talk about inequality. It, it tends to be now talked about as in generational terms, that mm-hmm. that's the explanation rather than class terms. Judith, I think we, or we, you, began to explain earlier the answer to the question I'm going to ask, but I just think it's worth articulating the question because you did mention there, and this caught my eye again as I was rereading yeah. parts of your book, that, that there is this electoral dominance of the non-Labor side within this liberal tradition uh, between 1901 and 83 when yeah. Labor breaks that sort of unbelievable Liberal Party reign beginning with Menzies. Uh, how, how, how should we understand this? And it's particularly interesting because it almost seems paradoxical because Labor is more stable. The party's founded in the 90s. Well, it is and it isn't. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yes, Labor is more stable organisationally, but Labor splits, you know, it splits over conscription. In 1910, under Andrew Fisher, Labor becomes wins that election and it becomes the first majority government. Prior to that, we'd had minority governments and various forms of alliances. But and so it's riding high, and it and then along comes the First World War and the battle over conscription, and Labor splits over conscription. Mm. That is some of the like, Billy Hughes is the Labor Prime Minister. He crosses the floor and says, "I'll be prime minister of the other side," <laughs> and takes some takes some of supporters with him. So Labor splits. Then Labor fragments again in the depression. It wins government uh, in 1929, just before the the depression. Really, it's the thing, and and it's it's sort of hit for six. Really, you know, it doesn't. Um, and some Keynesian ideas are just starting to become along and, and there's issues about whether or not the government should pay some of its debts, how, how the government should manage it, and it's and because it's seen as irresponsible. Uh, and Joe Lyons, who's the Treasurer, marches across the House, if you like, and he becomes the Prime Minister of the United Australia Party. Now, he's a Labor Prime Minister, but the Labor Party is split, and so it's, mm. again, it's the... Tradition, it's the continuation of the major non-Labor Party being in government. And then it splits again in the 50s um, with over when the De- Democratic Labor Party is formed. It splits over how to respond to communism when the Catholic membership, many of the, of the Catholic activists in the party walk away and really Menzies' success, certainly long, longev- political longevity, is partly explained by the existence of the DLP. 
who give it preferences and they, in a way, take a vote away from Labor. So, and then when Whitlam comes in, you know, it's an inexperienced government, but he is then hit by the end of the end of the long boom. Mm. And um, so uh, I think that it's it's the longevity, you know, what, what you're pointing to, the electoral dominance of the of the Liberal parties is partly explicable by their own terms, but it's also explicable in terms of the problems that Labor was facing. So is it is it actually the fact then, Judith, that although the Labor Party organisationally has its proverbial together earlier than the Liberal Party, it takes a while for it to reach a kind of stable national organisational form under Menzies, that the Liberals are actually ideologically more united and stable and coherent throughout this uh, period because... I'm yeah, I guess think- but they don't have, yes. I mean, and the other thing too is that is that the existence of the National Party. Ah, uh, yeah. Too. So, cause, because it's, it, the dominance is of a coalition government, not just of the Liberal Party. And um, the... Um, the country party, which is formed at the end of the second, sorry, at the end of the First World War, is effectively a split off from the major non-Labor party um, because the farmers wanted to. Ha- they'd seen the success of Labor in getting working men into Parliament, and they wanted to get farmers into Parliament. They didn't feel that the city-based non-Labor representatives really understood the land, the man on the land. And there was a an accommodation made by the major by the major non-Labor Party when Hughes and then Stanley Bruce were the Prime Ministers to introduce preferential voting. And so that allowed so you can in a sense say, well, okay, the country party represents a split in the non-Labor mm. forces, but yep. because it was accompanied by the introduction of preferential voting, it it kept that vote on the side of, of, of the non-Labor as a governing party. So I think that's important too, that that, that the existence of, of, of those two parties enabled some of the certainly economic tensions um, between country and and city uh, economic interests to be sort of sorted out without it causing rigidity and, and a split. Judith, you, you note in the book that uh, liberalism in Australia, you could probably make this case just for liberalism per se, uh, needs to be understood as something distinct from conservatism. And one of the interesting things I find, not just reading your historiography, but other Australian historians, you know, it's very obvious that liberalism is the dominant paradigm alongside its major opponent, the labor movement, and that these are the two defining intellectual and political traditions, if you like, that are certainly shaping things at the federal level. And the term conservatism, conservatives and conservatism, it's there, but it makes these cameo appearances in, in yeah. your historiography, yours as in you, Judith, but, but others like um, David Camp and others I've 
I've read, which then begs the question, and, and you, you you provide a really, I think, cogent explanation for why conservatism doesn't make a lot of sense in 19th century Australia. And I've done a whole podcast with Greg Melourish sort yeah. of examining some of this stuff. You know, we, we don't end up with a landed gentry and aristocracy. and uh, We don't have an established church. I think that's... Yeah, we don't cool. have an established church. And there aren't... The traditions that come out are brought from from England and Scotland and Ireland, but they quickly have to adapt, and so you're you're kind of forced to innovate <laughs> rather than defend entrenched interests because those interests are only just developing. That's right. There's a long story there, but uh, I'm interested in two two aspects to this story. So so one is whether conservatives in this colonial period and in this early part of the 20th century. Um, when liberalism is dominant, are there self-described conservatives in the liberal uh, parties? Uh, mm-hmm. Are there conservative figures that are of any importance? And partly why I think this is interesting is that if we fast forward to today, you look at the whole framework for thinking about the Liberal Party, there's a conservative faction and then there's a liberal or moderate mm-hmm. faction, and these two have been in great tension yeah, recently, yeah. and it's hard to even pinpoint when this self-conscious conservative element in the Liberal Party emerges. As far as I can tell, it seems to come in the Howard era, perhaps because he describes himself, or he describes himself as a bit of an amalgam of sort of Burke and Mill, but that's yeah. kind of where I'm coming from in terms of trying to understand the relationship between Australian liberalism and Australian conservatism. Yeah, no, that's a good question. I've been trying to think... Are there self-described conservatives in that period? It, as in the 19th century, I think conservative tends to be a bit of a term of abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, there were certainly self-described imperialists. I'm just trying to think, like, in say, for example, in the fights over conscription, which are partly f- fights they're fights over individual rights, but they're also fights over Australia's responsibility in the British Empire versus the sort of what was happening in Ireland. I don't think the term conservative was mm-hmm. used to describe the two sides, even though one might want to see, if one was a Republican, the imperialists as conservative. Um, I don't think in the Depression, um, that conservatism was the term. Um, I know that Menzies says, you know, and it gets much quoted by um, contemporary moderate liberals, you know, we're, we're to be a, a liberal party, not a conservative party, we're not to be a party of reaction. And that's partly because he felt at that time the Liberal Party had lost the initiative and was just saying, was just a party that was saying no to some of the new thinking that was developing during the Second World War. Um, I don't, and then I think it just becomes used for people who were defending the status quo because, of course, by the, by the time we get to the 1950s, we've got a status quo. Mm. You know, it's not like the 19th century where we're a new settler society. Um and we've got more vested interests. But I don't think that the, like, the 50s and 60s are also decades of the embrace of modernity. 
So the supporters of the Liberal Party want to be—they want to be seen as a modern party that's yeah. embracing um, the development of the, you know, the, the affluent, um, much more prosperous, forward-looking society. So the Liberal Party actually then—we were talking organisationally, like it. it it becomes much more innovative than Labor in terms of the way it runs its electoral campaigns. It embraces some of the um, ideas of modern advertising, you know, and 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 it wants to it, it wants to be seen as this modern forward-looking party, and it wants to, and it puts Labor as a party that's somehow just still harping on about the conflicts of the depression and, and not able to embrace the opportunities of the post-war world, you know, so. So then I guess to sum to your question, when does it start to become, when does conservative start to become a term that's used to describe a particular political formation in Australia? It probably starts being used after Margaret Thatcher, mm -hmm. I think, um, where she um, and with, and then you're right, that it's John Howard who uses it. Now, what I think is happening there. Uh, Rob Mann's written about this, is that the Liberal Party, the Liberal Party has been a champion of neo neoliberal economics, that is expanding the market, shifting the balance between whether the, the state and the market in the distribution of the country's resources. And so neoliberalism is a term that gets attached to the argument that we need more market mechanisms, more competition. So that's happening now. Actually, market economy, the market economy is a solvent of social relationships, even though its champions never admit that. Um, <laughs> and so what you have is, men, is, is somebody like Howard then um, champion, championing um, traditional social forms of the family and the nation uh, to, in a sense, balance the um, ways in to you know to to balance the ways in which the language of individualism and competition, which is being wielded in relationship to economic relations, and to balance that with a language of sol of solidarity and 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 bond bonding um, in social relations, and we need to bring into this the movements from the nineteen sixties onwards, which have um, like of, of sexual liberation, of women's liberation, which have challenged and changed dominant family forms, uh, so that it starts to become. It makes sense. There is something in the traditional ways in which people lived, which conservatives can say, well, that's what we want to continue to support, and in traditional notions of the nation as the actual de demography of the nation has been being changed by an immigration policy championed by people like Howard, you know, but um, that, that sort of that all those tensions around race of the 1980s, which Howard got caught up in, were because actually the traditional understandings of, of Australia were being shifted by the actual demographic shifts that were happening with the Asian immigration. Judith, we're 
we've kind of worked our way into the contemporary. And I'd like to sit with the contemporary for a little bit mm-hmm. because, you know, the the history is fascinating, partly because for me it reveals just how changed our cultural and political circumstances are today. And, and in a funny way, the fact that our two major parties have been around for so long and still accord the Labor Party and the Liberal yeah. Party in a way is quite misleading because because I, I wonder where liberalism is today. Now, I know there are people in the Liberal Party and I had a couple of years ago Tim Wilson on when he was still an MP on this mm-hmm. show and he described himself as a modern liberal. But they're, they're, they're now just one faction, <laughs> one warring faction in the Liberal Party so-called. There's been... In recent years, the emergence of more popular right-wing parties, the whole Hanson thing, she's been around. There's the Second United Australia (laughs) Party that began as the Palmer United Party. This other ism, progressivism, has come in and that's routinely used now in in sort of it's, it's entered the popular lexicon on the left. We've had the emergence of the Greens. We've got the Teal Independence, and I have met some um, left-leaning, say, intellectuals in Australia who describe themselves as liberals, and I think what they really mean are classical liberals. They're all depressed because they think liberalism is under threat from the left. You've got many people on the right who think the centre-right liberalism is just as bad as (laughs) Marxism and a threat to civilization, and so I just I'm interested in your thoughts because I think about this this a lot mm. in terms of you know is has liberalism been overtaken by other is it in the process of being marginalized by conservatism populism progressivism <laughs> uh, is it still how to what extent could we describe it as a dominant sort of ethos of the middle class or the Australian people. What on earth is happening? Because it feels like we're, we're in a in a transitional phase. I mean, this is happening globally and Australia's kind of caught up in this where there's lots of realignment. You could throw in here, and you've spoken about this too, that these, these two great intellectual and political traditions, labour and liberal, that were really truly representative of big sections of the Australian people don't seem to be representative okay. of much anymore. Two things I'd say. The first is let's look at what's happened to the society. When, you know, if we go back to when Menzies is forming the Liberal Party, and it's like what I was talking a bit about earlier, Australians did experience, were did experience themselves in terms of these two social worlds of the middle class and the working class. You know, they were geographically separated. um, And so manual and non-manual labour, levels of education, to some extent religion, these sort of piled up on each other as social cleavages, which in a way overlaid each other and created social blocks which these two political parties could roughly come to represent. It's not to say there's not lots of cross-class voting and everything, but um, it sort of made sense. 
Mm. Now, Australian society is now much, much more complex. It's more complex ethnically, religiously. Um, the economy has changed a lot. We've seen, so for example, manual work now, um, like we think of the tra- of, of, of a self-employed tradesman, you know, that that they they may be running a small business. I mean, they might be earning more than a, an office worker. Yeah, that's right. You know, so that so that the economy so that is 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 more fragmented or dispersed in some ways. I mean, there's all sorts of changes that are happening. But so so when a person comes to vote, there's there's not, there's each every individual you know they they've got a particular economic role they'll have a religious heritage they'll have a cultural ethnic identity they may have a sexual heritage or identity and um which one of those is the thing that determines their vote will vary across that so it sort of breaks the blocks up is what i'm saying so the society's changed it's the first thing i want to say um Judith, can I, can I just just on that um just to, to summarize what I take from that, because I think this is this is a very profound insight that the, and I think you actually say this in the book. It's not it's not so much a failure on the part of the the parties as though they they somehow decided we're, we're just going to be aloof and not representative. It's almost impossible for a major party now to genuinely represent such a fragmented electorate, and perhaps the evidence of that is the emergence of all these minor parties well, it's that are tapping into. Yeah. yeah, because one of the things a political party does is it is in, in, in its internal processes, it, you know, there's all sorts of views out there. There's all sorts of interests out there. Um, and a, a, one of the things, the functions, if you like, of a major political party is to broker those parties to, and, and come up with a solution which it then presents to the electorate because we can't, you know, it's too hard to vote on 10 things, you know, and we've got a, the Westminster structure leads to this um, two-party system. I mean, I think what we're probably going to see, and because I'm not an opponent, I'm a supporter of minority governments. I don't think minority governments and coalition governments are such a bad thing. Um, I know a lot of the sort of right-wing press you know, throw up their hands in horror at the thought of it. But, you know, Deacon, who I think was a really good prime minister, ran minority governments, and he said that running a minority government meant you got outcomes which more truly represented the national interest because you had to broker in parliament. So the question is really where the brokering, where the compromises are negotiated. Now, what the system we've been used to, the 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 compromises have been negotiated inside the party structures, but they're clearly not being that effective. And certainly in the Liberal Party, they're not very effective at the moment. But that means that the, the compromises are going to be negotiated in the Parliament. And I think that's actually better because it's more visible to the public. And the public, you know, so the Teals are effectively really a break away from the Liberals because the Liberal Party had failed to be able to negotiate the, the changing views of a lot of its electoral base inside its party organisations. So they're now visible in the parliament and that's where the compromises will be negotiated. Um, so that's, so I think that, yes, it's because, so there's that, but I, I mean, it's, there's something, 
like I, I don't quite understand why the Liberal Party is in completely in the mess that it's in. Um, uh, I think I, I think there are state based that our state based differences have become they've always been important, but that's they seem to have reemerged as um, as important factors at the at the national level in the last couple of decades. The way and I and and here I think we have to bring in climate change and the tensions around the environment. Is mm. that it's quite clear that insofar as we want to talk about conservatives in the Liberal Party, they're grounded in Queensland, you know, yeah. and Queensland um, and to some extent in, in, in Western Australia, though they got wiped out at the last election. These are states whose wealth is based on mining yeah. and, and fossil fuel mining and there's been, and that's, and there's enormous political opposition to that amongst many other Australians and, uh, and that's pushed. That's what I, where I see the conservatism of the Liberal Party being sort of grounded in some ways. Um, so what you really what you're pointing to is the fact that an issue like climate change, and perhaps we could even think of some others, because I'm just thinking about the changing nature of the the economy in general, has has brought to the surface regional differences. Yes. Yes, that, that maybe weren't so divisive or destructive in the past, and this is this is really hurting the the Liberal National Coalition. Yes, yes, at I the moment. So. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's a tension they they have to figure out. I mean, the Nationals seem to be when they did quite well at the last election, um, but I and I think that for people concerned about the environment and climate change, for these people to console themselves to call themselves conservative is just like a you just think, how can they be conservative? They're actually destroying the they're destroying nature, they're destroying the earth, you know, from a they're they're you know, they're they're posing great they're prepared to take great risks with with our future. And I don't understand how they that seems to as somebody like me to have no links with what I understand as traditional conservatism being, you know, it, it, it seems to be about maintaining the existing power and economic structure rather than yeah. maintaining some more fundamental values in which human life is grounded. I actually think that I agree because if you look at the older conservative intellectual tradition, admittedly long before climate change becomes... yeah. An issue of concern. They're they're often environmentalists in some way. Yeah. Either there's this romanticization of nature, particularly in the UK, that the whole sort of you know the estate in the country and the the land and this love of the land and and there is this often sense you see this a little in the American conservative thinker Russell Kirk, who li lived a rural lifestyle and sort of lauded that there was this love of. Uh, the country, not in the nation-state sense, but the, the countryside. <laughs> this, yeah, and I and I I, th I wonder if what's changed is the growing influence of libertarian and neoliberal thinking amongst conservatives, because I because I think the modern conservative basically has adopted an economic program that that doesn't actually come out of the conservative tradition. That they've got it from the fusion with 
neoliberal economic thinking out of that 80s period and also increasingly libertarianism. And there's this kind of morphing of conservatism. And I think you see this in Australia and I was just chatting recently with um, someone who's very involved with the LDP. Shout out to Craig if he's listening. And, uh, you know, they're growing. There's growing interest in this kind of libertarian alternative. And they're picking up a lot of conservatives who are now more concerned about about individual freedom from government. It's very American, I, th- I think, in, in, yeah. in many ways. Yeah, and, it, and it's, um, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, thinking, reading through your questions, I'm thinking, well, okay, Mark's description of modernity is all that is solid melts into air. And, and the two solvents, if you like, are the market economy and a certain sort of an individualism um, and concern with liberty and human rights. And they, they both dissolve traditional forms and, and they keep doing it, you know, they, they're not. Yeah. That. And so the, the libertarianism who, who then, like, what's the link between that and what would be put on the progressivist side, you know, the concern with, with sexual identity and new forms of the family because they're not so much about the, well, they're a bit about the government too and about traditional norms and being able to do things in your own way. But yet the tradition, the, the now people calling themselves conservatives will also be anti-trans hmm. often, you know, like, so I think there's something really about masculinity that's driving a lot of the new conservatives. That's how, you know. Oh, so it's definitely very male. Um, yeah. You know, and so asserting, you know, uh, I, yeah, uh, but it's um, it's it's not yeah, it's something I don't really feel I understand very well. I I've got another idea that I want to put yeah. you, which has kind of crept into my mind just listening to you talk about this, and I wonder if in in some sense, and I'm staying on this kind of hypothesis of mine, which you may or may yeah. not agree with, that liberalism is. It's become quite amorphous and opaque to me. It's hard to kind of you well, find no, these self-described liberals, but that age where most where so many Australians would identify as liberals seems to have left us behind. And I wonder if there's a sense in which liberalism is a victim of its own success, because it seems like everyone now takes the centrality of the individual for granted. Yeah, and if right. anything, we're we're in a hyper individualism. And whether you're way on the left or way on the right. People are very conscious of my my rights and my autonomy as an individual. And whilst the issues may differ, <laughs> you feel like a lot of this is the, the, the common factor here is just, and you named it earlier, this individualistic culture. Now, if that's right, and that was the idea of the individual, not individualism per se, was a bedrock of that older 19th century and, and 20th century liberalism, then perhaps you can begin to see how it loses its purpose and and almost raison d'etre because everyone's taken that element of liberalism and developed it in different ideological directions, yeah, yeah. which doesn't leave the liberal so-called really any reason to exist anymore. So I think I probably agree with that, that, that individualization, individuation, you know, is now 
the, the process, you know, because in the 19th century, even when Menzies is talking, he's talking about the individual, but the family structure, traditional family structure is taken for granted. It's not in the political arena. Um, the the na- notion of the nation and what it is to be Australian, there's a bit of tension about how British we are or not, but it's it's not in the political arena. There's a cultural homogeneity which in a sense holds the, the nation together and doesn't have it hasn't been politicised. Mm. Um, now with mass immigration that we've had, um, there's there's... <sighs> There's not the same, you know, individual to individual, you know, f- friendships will form, but there's not the same taken for granted sort of solidarity. People are, in a way, are sort of on their own, you know, to make their yeah. way in the world. Um, they, they, there's family networks and friendship networks in which people live, but these are um, apart from the family and people now negotiate their families in different ways, you know, there's not as much taken for granted in life. So I think you're right. And the Labor Party is as much, you know, involved with this. Um, but it means that that for collective action we become more reliant on government to some extent. You know, that, mm. um, although it, the, volu- the, the volunteer tradition in Australia is strong, Um and uh, so you do see people taking, you know, things into their own hands when they had to, like in some of the floods. Um, so yeah, it's this is this, is this uh, thesis, Judith, that if you if you remove, although it's not so much remove, but if um, mediating institutions decline or disappear, then you end you end up. By yeah, with the, with the government. government and the individual. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, yeah. the churches have declined, trade unions have declined, a lot of the volunteer clubs, I think, you know, have have declined. I don't think they've declined in Australia as much as they have in the United States, you know, with Putnam's Bowling yeah. Alone thesis. Um, we live in simpler worlds and we don't have um, we don't have the the scar of racial dif- of, of of slavery and its legacy in the you know in the um, in the way the United States does. So um, I think at the day to day community level things maybe cohere a bit more. Um, I'm not sure about that. Um, it actually makes you wonder if the success of that earlier incarnation of liberalism was actually very the the idea of focusing on the individual was very dependent on the civic social yeah yeah community networks that existed yeah and the notion of the citizen carried notions of obligation and service not just notions of rights you know because australia hadn't been particularly focused on rights yeah. You know, they had the right to vote and these various rights to own property, but then being a citizen was about, it was a, a solid, solidistic notion, you know, it was about something that drew people together. Yeah. Um, whereas now it's big, it's big, it's a very hollowed out state yeah. sort of notion. Yeah. See, I think a lot of what drives modern or contemporary conservatism is not strictly speaking a conserving tradition anymore. Yeah. It, it's a romantic lament. It's, a re- it's of, reactive, isn't it? Well, it, it it looks reactive on the surface, but I, th- I think what's going on 
at a deeper level is a, a lament and sense of loss of those old social structures. And I say loss because I don't think they can be recaptured. I think we're in a new society yeah, yeah, now. And yeah. conservatism, because it, and I think it's right that there has been a loss of <laughs> social networks and but civic that's institutions. What, that's, that's historical change. You know, that's, that's technologically driven modernity. That's right. But what it lacks is is a kind of constructive agenda that can deal with the new reality. It, it's stuck with the romantic loss. And often the, the analysis of what we've lost is, I find, quite compelling. But then, then there's a full stop because the conservative doesn't actually know how to come up with a form of conservatism that might be A, B, attractive, but offer some kind of reform or innovation along to, to vie with um, the more innovative thinking on the left, which I th- in, in my opinion goes to some sort of crazy crazy town directions, but it at least recognises the new, it, it's working off the new reality that we're, we're in. Yeah, but I think, you know, part of it too is that conservatism and conservative liberalism has never really confronted the inequalities that capitalist market systems cause and which the left has been prepared to do. You know, it won't look at what's going on. You know, so um, it's it's come to the party more over over climate change. I mean that's and I think that's that's where the liberal the Liberal Party is in real strife because it's managed to by digging its heels in against What's reality? Um, business hasn't done that. You know, it's alienated itself from its traditional supporters. But I'm thinking of things like the gig, the creation of the gig economy, mm-hmm. which is actually creating what the union movement was formed to fight against. It's creating piecework day labourers. You know, yeah. that's 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 what the 19th century working class was subjected to, and that's what you know the gig economy is doing. Um, and I think that that's something which a conservative party that was concerned about the dignity of people needs to confront, but it, but it, it, it won't look at economics properly, you know, and, it, and it's prone to conspiracy theories which don't explain anything. Except, I mean, what I, I was um, camping up in the Northern Territory and... I was talking around the fireside to a couple of, you know, of these new guys with beards who were out fossicking. Um, and I and they were telling me their their theories about how the world was run, which were conspiracy theories. But then I thought, well, actually, from their point of view, they they've got very little power. And mm. so to actually imagine that there are networks with real power, which in fact there are in terms of global corporations. They're not. Um, it's not totally wrong. Yeah. You know, there's there's something there because they are blocked in all sorts of ways as they've tried to. You know, they missing teeth. You know, they're not. They're having a tough time. And yeah. yeah. They're not stupid. Yeah. You know. It's interesting because those who find conspiracy theories compelling and particularly about the way the world's run 
and they they're all predicated on a certain view of power which is incredibly naive but of course you can have a naive view of power if you've never had any and you've never exercised it then you actually have no idea how power is developed held and exercised in the real world and so in a way the growth of conspiracy theories is indicative of a growing sense of powerlessness, disenfranchisement, yes. alienation, to use a Marxist yeah. <laughs> uh, term. And and I, I completely agree with your criticism of conservatism, actually. I, I think it it needs, personally, it's got to, got to get out of the libertarian, neoliberal straitjacket and look at it more from a social point of view, which makes perfect sense from a so, conservative you know, I don't see why you, like, a lot of conservatism has actually gone into the Labor Party. Yeah, well, people yeah. talk about the Labour Party as being the progressivist, but it's actually it's attempting to restore um, some power to wage earners. You know, it's attempting, um, I mean, it's also just attempting to be, I mean, uh, I see part of, the, of what's going on, which is not at an ideological level, as just being about competence. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's one of the things that's that's quite shocking to me about the contemporary Liberal Party is is its loss of confidence, and mm-hmm. that's partly what, what I was saying because of these ridiculous stance that took over climate change. It's actually lost its connections with the well, with the with the business world, and so the people who are being pre-selected, you know, are, 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 are sort of out of touch. They're not, you know, because one of the the things that the Liberal Party always argued about itself vis-a-vis the Labor Party in the 20th century was that they were the people who under, who had the skills to run the government. You know, look at Labor. These guys haven't finished secondary school. You're going to have the country run by shearers and train drivers, mm-hmm. whereas you could have the country run by people who know how to run a business and have been successful lawyers and understand how the law works. So just at that level. Now, and that was true, you know, um, but that's not true anymore. They've all got tertiary education. Um, and Labor has just proved in that last election, I think it was about, about competence. I mean, the last government was extraordinarily incompetent and they'd been pretty incompetent all along. And, I mean, and so it's the, it's the reactiveness. Like Howard was, was competent and I don't think they've had a competent leader since. No, well, I think uh, one of the fascinating things about any prime minister is the lesson I've learned over the, in the post-Howard era is just how the legacy is going to be shaped by what comes after. And I, and I remember at the yeah. time during the Howard, um, I mean, the first election I ever voted in was 96. And uh, so I kind of came of political age right at the start of the, the Howard era and and I remember it being competent but kind of dour and a little uninspiring at the time. Yeah. And there was plenty of criticism about it. And it was kind of I got the sense there was never any huge love for Howard, even amongst his supporters. He wasn't yeah, a kind yeah. of, you know, uh Obama like figure. No. But since he's left, I uh, the amount of people who even even his his erstwhile opponents who, who will now admit this grudging respect of like, wow, you know, he really was competent and it was a, <laughs> it was a pretty stable 
successful era on the whole. That's not to say everything he did was was good. And so I think the turmoil in both the Labour Party and in the Liberal Party that has come after 2007 has really made Howard Starr rise, I think, yeah. and, 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 and in a way... And Hawks too. And Hawks, yeah, 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 indeed, indeed. Absolutely, that, and there was so ran, there was. You know, they ran, they ran well organised cabinet governments. Yeah, <laughs> they and they yeah, they quite... understood um, what governing was about. That's why I'm moderately optimistic about Albanese because I thought after Howard, Rudd, Gillard, Abbott, Turnbull, Morrison. Um, None of them had had the really long experience of parliamentary government where they'd learned lessons and seen what works and what doesn't work and and how to manage ministers and understood the limitations of the prime minister's position vis-a-vis the other ministers. I mean, that, I mean Rudd was far too inexperienced, mm. um, whatever, however many good ideas he had, you know, to manage a government. And I think Albanese's appearing to be a bit more cautious and level-headed, but he's allowing he's running a cabinet government you know he's not imagining that he's a president you know so that, no, that so, I agree. um so that makes me a bit optimistic yeah i i totally I just agree think with we that. need a period of, of competent government for people to people's confidence in democracy to be restored and it's also easy to forget vis-a-vis howard because i think he one of his Great successes was just managing, keeping party unity. I mean, I that, actually think that, that Howard did a lot of damage to the fabric of the nation myself yeah. because I think I think the schools policy, one of the things I really am opposed to, um, has increased inequality. It's one of the factors that's increasing inequality in the country. Um, but you know, he he at least I mean he was competent and 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 there were certain things that he believed in. For example, he opposed compulsory voting, but which he didn't run with, you know, which is like yeah. the libertarian part of the Liberal Party that doesn't. But he knew that actually the Australian people like it and he wasn't going to rock the boat on that, you know. Yeah. He, he sort of chose his battles. I think he was actually a very proficient politician in yeah, that sense was, of a, yeah. a politician. He was, he was good at reading the, the political wins and, and to, you know, in poker, knowing when to hold them and when to... Um... Yeah. Put them down or whatever it is, but I was going to say that, of course, Howard, you know, he had, he had a brutal path to the prime ministership, and so That's he, right. he, he had he he had a very withering apprenticeship. Yeah, and that a lot of those him. who came after haven't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. I mean, he was, uh, you know, Lazarus with a triple bypass or whatever That's his right. uh, yeah. famous expression was. But but I certainly agree that the Albanese government. Uh, still early days, but it looks much more to be in, in the Hawke Keating Howard mould uh, than the Chobion years beginning with Rudd and ending with Morrison. Yeah, it's not, you know, like compared with Hawke, I mean, that, that, that government hit its straps with reforms very quickly, but that's because there was a real headwind behind neoliberal, some of the neoliberal reforms, you know, like, yeah. like you know, floating the dollar and deregulating the financial sector and things yeah. like that, which they did early, um, whereas I think we're in, uh, there's not 
like I think one of the other things that's happening at the moment that affects governments is that the neoliberal era, if you like, has sort of come to an end in a way. Yeah. And yeah. there's a bit of a floundering. It's not quite clear what, you know, and the, and, and the management of climate change and how that's going to be managed is just a huge challenge for governments around the world and um, it requires probably, you know, some pretty fundamental rethinking, um, but it's also confronting governments with, it's going to confront governments with a series of crises which they're going to have to react to because, you know, it's governments that are held. I mean, governments are the risk managers of last resort. Um, No matter how much, you know, that neoliberalism wanted to offload risk onto the individual, it it doesn't, you know, yes, some individuals go under, but it's the government that people blame. Certainly the government that bails out uh, any well, it's exp- businesses in the market for getting into trouble. Yeah, that's right, and, and that's a big expectation in Australia. Yeah. I think that's a very pertinent point, Judith, that the – and that about the end of the neoliberal period because it is a reform – it had a reform agenda. Yeah, and there was, and, there was real – there weren't heat with – you know, like there was a real – both in the Liberal Party and amongst the elites, there was real interest in the new neoliberal policies and the, the Labor yeah. Party rode that. Yeah, yeah. But but most of those big neoliberal reforms, which begin in the Hawke-Keating era and end with Howard, they've all been implemented. And it's now, it's now, in some cases, decades since the dollar was floated and since Howard sold yeah, off. And some of them have gone bad, you know, like the privatisation yeah. of the electricity sector. Um, yeah, in Victoria. But, but I'm thinking. I'm thinking in particular. There aren't really those big reforms left, and and people do, I think, correctly observe. And this is not a, a partisan observation that we came through this big reform era in the 80s and into the 90s, and there haven't been a lot of big reforms, certainly at the economic level, like it's that. Right. I mean, we do a tax review every five years, and then. The government's too scared to implement any of the um, yeah. <laughs> the reforms, and so in a way, it, it feels like there's we're in this aimless period. It's almost like we're, we're the ship was sailing and the engine cut out. Now we're just drifting. Yeah, I think that, people I think aren't that. really sure how to adapt to the new economic. Because after this, the end of this neoliberal period, the interesting thing is there's been a revolution in the economy with the whole digital revolution and That's right. stuff going on with power and. Um, geostrategic elements and you know we're on the on the cusp of the dawn of ai and lots of different things happening and that that has coincided with the end of this neoliberal period because the one thing it had whatever you think of it is it had a very um had a very deliberate and clear agenda that's right because that means that politicians business leaders the political elites have a language that they can talk to each other in, you know, yeah. and there's an agenda. And, I mean, I remember re- I read an article that was I thought very interesting which said that one of the reasons neoliberalism was so successful was because it actually, you know, at the end when Keynesianism was falling apart, whether neoliberalism was right or wrong, it just became, it became, solu- it provided solutions, yeah. you know, and that, um and people, you know, and and that gave 
a cohesiveness, as you said, to the political and managerial elites. And, yeah, I think that's right at the moment. It's very confusing. And I think that the growing inequality um, is something which, you know, we saw a little bit of electoral consequence of that at the last election with the election of the Greens in Brisbane on the basis of really um, campaigning around issues around home ownership and affordability. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is a huge, I think, sort of it's not even a sleeper issue in the gig economy. You know, we've got um, and I, and governments are not quite and political parties are not quite sure really how to deal with that because it is about haves and have-nots and some of the have, I mean, I, I think we need a much more taxation reform and we need to be up there needs to be taxation of wealth not just of income and you know an estate tax is an obvious way to do that it doesn't harm economic activity mm. but just imagine you know labor tried to bring that in without the liberals supporting it it's been a fascinating conversation judith and uh australian political history is extremely interesting in my opinion which is why i do so many episodes of the par- podcast on it but i'm Really thrilled that you came on to uh, share your your long study of the this nation that we're both citizens of. So thanks for being a guest on the show. And thank you, Jonathan, and I enjoyed the conversation. That's all for this episode, folks. If you've enjoyed the conversation, please consider giving a five-star rating on Apple and or Spotify, Spotify. Spotify, subscribe if you haven't already. Thanks, as always, for listening. Uh, Thanks to my producer, Angelo Groza, and I'll catch you next time.